Morning, church. How's everybody doing? So, if you have a Bible, uh, please turn to John chapter 4. We are moving so fast, almost offensively fast through John. Um, It's John chapter 4, and as we're getting into chapter 4, because we are going at such a, a, a lightning speed through this book, you have to catch the flow and the arc, the narrative arc of what's going on. I do think it's good to take John in chunks like this, because you see what's going on. If you get sunk down into like one verse, which you can totally do in John, you're like, what's the bigger picture? And it's good as we're broad stroking this thing, like, oh, this is what's going on. So today we're talking about the woman at the well, the very famous story of the woman at the well. And I'm going to read this to you. I'm going to be reading out of the NIV. Um, if you have a Bible, turn there. If you have a device, open it up, put on Do Not Disturb, so you're locked in. And, uh, and just follow along. And I need you to listen to the story because I'm going to pull in and pull, uh, pull out of the story. I won't be able to read all of it through again, but I'm going to be picking through different parts of it. So would you please, please follow along. All right. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptizing with his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had, that's, I, I, I like, if you have a King James Bible, first of all, extra points in heaven for that. Um, <laughs> I love the way that old King James translates he had. It said he must needs to go through Samaria. That's like the emphasis of he had. It wasn't like he had to. He must needs to go there. That's how it's translated. I love that. It's, I've written that in my Bible. That's the way I read it. Now, Jesus must needs go through Samaria. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his, sons, uh, to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I I won't get thirsty And have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, okay, go. Call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. (laughs) Favorite line. Our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place to worship, uh, the worship where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a 
time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one who, who, the one speaking to you, am he. I am he. Just then, disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do, you, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see the man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? (laughs) They're awesome. Um, (laughs) Jesus, my food, says Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done, she said. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed with them two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer just believe because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. That, we could just end right there. Such a good story. But let's get into it. I have some notes. Okay, let's pray. God, I just thank you for this uh, morning. I ask God that... um, that you would make a really, really aware during our time together in, your, in the scriptures um, of our needs, of our own needs, our own thirst, of our own hunger, our own desires, God. Um, I pray that there, there's, there, there would be a time in today's teaching, in today's um, teaching in through our second set of responsive worship, God, where you would, you would look at us in the eye and say, what do you want? What are you, what are you looking for? What are you, what are you thirsting after? Um, those sort of questions. And God, if we don't believe, would you give us faith to believe? I submit my mouth and my mind and my heart to you. Lord, we ask together that you would um, use this time um, to, to transform our souls. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. About uh, 16 years ago, um, I, um, I, when I just first started to teach the Bible regularly, um, I, I went to a class I lived in Bakersfield, California, and it was on the coast. It was in Ventura, California. And I went to this class that was on story-formed teaching. Um, Growing up in that time, 16 years ago, uh, the most common form of sermons were like three-point didactic teachings. And this class was to help uh, teachers, Bible teachers, uh, get into the text. So your your, your sermons and your, your teachings would have more of a narrative arc to them. So I was there, it was a relatively small class, maybe 12, 15 people, and I remember the class started by us reading John 4 like we just did. And we read, we read this, this narrative, this account, and then we all sat there, there were both men and women in this class, and we all sat there and we said, let's get into the woman at the well's sandals. Let's try to feel what she felt. Let's just, here's whiteboards, let's start writing things on how you think she might have felt. And so we were going around and we just made observations about the story. We made observations about what it must have felt like, how hot it must have been for carrying a large jar of empty, an empty large jar of water in the middle of the day at noon. Remember, John says it was at noon. How hot it must have been. This is the desert. 
This was a barren place, and there was a well there, and she's walking to the well in the middle of the day. How hot it must have been, alone. I mean, she didn't have her earbuds in. She wasn't, like, checking social media. She wasn't, like, selfies, you know, whatever, wandering in the desert again. Like, nothing like that. (laughs) Alone with her thoughts. And she was alone. Why in the world would she be alone, and why would she be going at noon? That's not when you draw water. You draw water in the morning when it's cool, especially during this time. Uh, you would draw morning, water in the morning so you, when it was cool, and then you bring your water back so you had water for the whole day. Why was she there at noon? I mean, what did it feel like to go alone to draw water when drawing water was a women's social event? It was literally a woman's social event every day. And it wasn't a bad thing. It was a great thing. They loved it. They would get up in the morning and they would all, as a community, walk down and just hang out and grab water from a well and come back. Wells were the locale where women could be either avoided or met. And they would all go down together. What did it feel like to go alone? What did it feel like to go, I, 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 can't, I can't go in the morning. I have to go at noon. She must have been desperate to go at noon for water. Either because she slept in after a long night before, or she was socially outcast, so she couldn't go with the other women in the morning. Maybe she was hopeless, angry at herself. I don't know. So we were like putting ourselves in her shoes. In any case, she was alone. She was probably very hot. It was the heat of the day. She was desperate, and she was probably tired, and not just physically tired. You heard the story. She was soul tired. She was tired from wandering. She was tired from wandering from one house to the next. She had had five husbands. I mean, today that's a lot of husbands. (laughs) Imagine in that traditional culture, five husbands. And the one she's sleeping with right now was not her husband. And we don't know why. Either they're not married and they're just sleeping together, or he's already married. We're not told. It could be an affair. It could be they're just sleeping together. We don't know. But she, and we don't even know why five men. She's gone. Either she's gone through five men or five men have gone through her. We don't know. Either she could have married men that she, that she was like so thankful to have and they all died. They kept on dying one after the other. And she was known as the woman who killed men. Like Black Widow or something. Like every time you marry someone, that guy dies. She's like, it's not my fault. I don't. And so she could have been just completely heartbroken. Or she, that could have happened to the first three and then the other. If she could have, been, what, have gone through all five or all five could have gone through her and completely destroyed her life and used her and tossed her to the side. We don't know. But that was uncommon. We don't know. Here's what we do know. We do know that John, the author of this book, is a masterful writer. And we know by design what he does. He puts the accounts of Nicodemus last week Right next to the woman at the well. He does this on purpose. You're supposed to read these stories together. Nicodemus was a man. He was a Jew. And he was a Jewish insider. Nicodemus, we studied last week, was wealthy, political, educated, and on the Jewish ruling council of 70 men who ruled the the country under the Roman government. You couldn't, not, you couldn't get more inside culturally and politically and religiously than Nicodemus. You couldn't get more inside than Nicodemus. But remember Nicodemus had to come at night. Remember that? He came at night. He came in the dark spiritually and he left in the dark. Juxtaposed to Nicodemus was, a, was the woman at the well. Notice she has no name. Nicodemus has a name. She has no name. She was a Samaritan. 
Samaritans didn't have any sort of connection with Jews. Samaritans were a small group of Jews who didn't go into exile in, during, uh, during the Babylonian exile. They kind of stayed behind a small, small pocket of them. They intermarried with the Canaanites, which was against and prohibited by Jewish law. As a, re- as a result, they took on Canaanite gods, and the religions kind of mixed. So they, were, they were Jewish, but they weren't. And then they had, they had some Jewish religion, but Canaanite religion. They had mixed blood as well. All of this, they were, then they called themselves a new tribe uh, called the Samaritans. And the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Hated. There was racial tension. She was racially an outsider to Jesus. She was a woman. And in Jesus' day, women were second-class citizens, period. I don't even have time to go into what Jesus has done and what the gospel of Jesus Christ has done to liberate women. You should study it. And what he does here is unbelievable. So she was a woman. She was a Samaritan, and she was a woman. And not only was she a Samaritan and a woman, which would have been two degrees of separation that you do not cross that barrier, she was a sinner. And we don't know the extent of her sin or the extent of why she had five husbands, but the man she was sleeping with right now was not her husband. No matter what part of the Bible or church history you're in, that's sin. She was a sinner. So where you could not get more inside culturally or politically or religiously than Nicodemus... You cannot get more outside racially, culturally, morally than the woman at the well. And John is contrasting these two things. You cannot get more inside than Nicodemus, and you cannot get more outside than this woman at the well. But look what John says about this woman. She came to Jesus at noon during the light of the day. And the beautiful irony of this story is the woman stays in the light. She stays in the truth, even when she has every reason throughout this dialogue to go and run and hide back in the darkness. The light of truth gets shined on her and she's exposed and she just goes, she stands there and she keeps asking questions. She doesn't go, oh my gosh, you know everything about me. She just runs away and hides. No, no, no. She keeps asking questions. She keeps asking questions until Jesus finally says, I'm the Messiah. And she goes, I've met the Messiah. And she runs back into town. She stays in the light. And the result is that this woman gets the life of God in her and flowing from inside of her out. Let me show you what I mean by that. Let's look at this interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. It's one of my favorite interactions of people in the New Testament. Jesus is sitting by a well at noon. His disciples have left to go grab some food, to buy some food. Um, He's there and he has nothing to draw water with. This well would have been something like 100 feet down. So he's just hanging out there. And all of a sudden, this woman walks up. And she sees Jesus. She notices Jesus. She doesn't probably make even eye contact with Jesus. She doesn't expect Jesus to speak at all. She just notices him. She's about to grab water. And then he just speaks up. And he says, will you give me a drink? Can I have some water? See, John has gone the extra mile in the first couple chapters to show the transcendent, pre-existing deity of Jesus. Chapter 1, his prologue, which we talked about several weeks ago, he is the Logos made flesh. But here, he is tired and thirsty, and he wants some water. Jesus is fully human as well. So he asks, can I have a drink? And her response, her response captures everything I just told you about. Like, what in the world are you talking to me for? I can't believe you opened your mouth. You need, how did you even know? Like, look, look what it says in verse 4. You are a Jew... And I am a Samaritan, one degree, woman, two degrees. How can you even ask me for a drink? You know, I know, we both know, as soon as I grab this water from this wall and give it to you, what I've given you is unclean. 
and you would be, as a Jewish rabbi or a Jewish person, unclean because you even took water from my jar. What are you doing? Why in the world would you even be talking to me? You know you can't drink from my cup. That would plague you. That would, that would contaminate you. She knows right away that Jesus is breaking all kinds of barriers. Jesus has broken a racial barrier, a cultural barrier, a gender barrier, a moral barrier to talk with her. Jesus is just blowing past all these barriers. Jesus should know better as to not have any interaction with her. But Jesus responds to her. And I'm changing, what I'll do here is on the screen, I'm going to change the tense of what Jesus says so you get the impact of it. This is what Jesus is saying, basically. Here's a paraphrase. He says to her, if you knew who I was, you would have asked me for a drink, and I would have given you living water. She goes, how can you ask me for a drink? And he's like, if you knew who I was, you would have, you've actually would have asked me for a drink, and I would, I would have given you living water. Now, this is where it gets so, so good. There's a double meaning to living water. The first meaning is a literal meaning. The literal meaning of living water is a rushing water from a spring. It's cool, clean, delicious water. It's coveted water in the first century because typically what they would do is they would dig cisterns by their property. And they would, they would, they would put, uh, put these cisterns made of clay and they would hold water like a, like a water tank. And when rain came or whatever, they would fill up this cistern. And these cisterns would would have this stale water, but it was water nonetheless, but it was stale, it wasn't good. The, the good water was called living water. Living water was spring water. Living water is you had to dig a deep, deep, deep well and get to where it was rushing and cold. It's like San Francisco, you know how good San Francisco water is? You, you know, we have Hetch Hetchy water. You guys know that? Like people are proud of our water. Like if you go to the sunset, people wear Hetch Hetchy shirts. <laughs> like it's so, it's like in Yosemite Valley, like there's a giant lake that's just our lake of water. Did you know that? So good. Our water here is delicious, okay? I want some right now. Um, it's like that, like rushing cold. Every morning when I wake up and I, out of my faucet, a cold glass of Hetch water, and I drink it, and I'm like, the water is so good. Just so refreshing. That's, that's the kind of water, that's what living water was. It's a cold, rushing, cool, clean spring. So at first, this woman's like, wait, 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 whoa. You know where there's living water? How, how do you, what are you talking about? First of all, if you're talking about the living water that's in this well, you don't have anything to draw with. So how in the world are you going to give me living water? That's 100 feet down. What are, you, what, are you, what are you talking about? But if you're, if you're saying that, mister, if you're saying you know about another well of living water that no one else knows about, are you greater than Jacob who found this well and dug it himself? Are you saying that you know of another well that you're going to dig for me? Like what's going on here? What do you mean living water? I, first of all, I'm in. I want it. But what, where is this water at? I want to know what, what, you're, what you're talking about. So when she talks about, where Jesus talks about this living water, Jesus says this. So she's asking, what are you talking about? This? I want this water, but are you greater than Jacob? Are you going to dig this well? Where's this water coming from? And Jesus says this. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Just like you drink this water, you're going to be thirsty again if you have this water. You're going to keep coming here all the time for this water. But the water I'm going to give you will make you never thirst hopelessly again. And the woman said to him, sir, 
I think I want some of that. Uh, give me this water. And then she says this. She's still, like, she, I love this because they're on two different planes and they're kind of missing each other. She goes, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. You must know of some other fountain, something closer, so I don't have to go here. I don't want to thirst anymore. Do you see what's happening? There are like two dimensions of meaning are happening at the same time. And Jesus knows both of them. He knows, he knows what she's saying, but he also knows what he's saying. And they kind of they start to grasp it, or she kind of starts to grasp it, but not really. She is saying, on a merely earthly, physical level, sir, I don't want to thirst anymore. You're right, I am thirsty, and I don't want to thirst. What she is saying is that she doesn't want to thirst, but what she's also saying is she doesn't want to thirst. Does that make sense? I don't want to thirst anymore, but she's also saying I don't want to thirst anymore. Would you give me this? Because I'm, I'm thirsty, and I don't want to thirst. See, there, there's a second level of meaning. This is what Jesus was talking about. Living water has, is, is a metaphor It's woven throughout the Old Testament. It's all over the Old Testament. It means the fresh running supply that God offers to bring us life. The fresh running supply of the life of God to us and through us and in us. There's a very powerful and important point. Remember I've always told you there's peaks and valleys and it progresses as the story of the Old Testament unfolds. Well, here's a peak in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter two. This is what Jeremiah, this is what God says through Jeremiah the prophet. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Keep that up there for a second. This is so important. There are two options before us. There is the option to receive the life of God His living water, his way, his purpose, God's plans. This takes a lot of faith. But there is so much refreshment offered there. The other option is to dig your own cistern. Remember we talked about that? They would dig them on the side of their properties. And they would line them. They would make them out of clay. And they would hold rainwater or or whatever. And they would pour those into them. And this is you make your own life for yourself. Your version of pleasure. Your version of happiness. Your version of hope. But here's the deal with our cisterns. Our cisterns are cracked. They're porous. They don't hold water that well. They don't hold water that long. They leak. And they have to keep, we have to keep going to the well alone at noon to try and fill them up again. And we have to keep going to the well and going to the well and going to the well. And we try to bring it back to our cisterns and they keep drying. Do you get the metaphor? It's way more than a metaphor, of course. It's us. It's our life. Jesus says... I want to give you living water. And she responds, where's the spring? And Jesus says, I'm the spring. See, what, 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 what's going on here is, this is the uh, Jacob's well, it's called. See, Jacob um, was a hero to these people from the book of Genesis. And he dug this well. And for centuries, travelers and locals and others would go to this well and find refreshment. And Jesus stands at this well, a place of refreshment, in front of the most thirsty of people, and says that this well will cause you to thirst again, but I am the refreshment from God. And if you drink of my well, you will never thirst again. You come here to find refreshment? Yeah, but this doesn't really give you refreshment, does it? 
I mean, it might for a little while, but you'll be thirsty again. What you're looking for is found in me. So he steps right into the place where these people have got refreshment and says, I'm the refreshment from God. Jesus says, I want to give you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, I mean, the woman keeps like believing in Jesus, like believing, like, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty. I have to keep coming here to draw water. I mean, would you give it to me? Would you, would you give me this water? What are you talking about? I'm reading this book right now called Teach Us to Want during Lenten season by um, Jen, Michael, and Mikkel. And it's a fabulous book. In it, she kind of riffs on this story a bit for like two pages in the book. She has this paragraph I want to read you. It's just so good about this story. She says this. What was it about this man, Jesus, that nurtured her small, shriveled seed of hope? Why should she ever believe a man again when all they'd ever done was promise lies in exchange of sex? He awakened something sleeping in her, a desire to find herself in the arm of something, someone, so deeply satisfying that she could drink in its abundance and nourish the arid places of self-hatred and shame. Something made her begin to believe again. She, what this author is saying is, why in the world would this woman trust another man ever? Why would she believe Jesus? Are you, are, are you promising me something that you'll never deliver on, like the last six men I've been with? But something in Jesus' words, something in Jesus' approach, there's something about Jesus that causes this seed of hope again to live. To go, oh, where is this water? Where, where can I get this water at? Can I have some of this water? I want it. I need it. You don't know how bad I need this water. I'm tired of coming here in the middle of the day. I'm tired of dodging the other women who look at me the way they do. I'm tired of being socially outcast. If you can tell me of a private spring of living water that would bring me so much joy, I need this water. What happens next is so important. Jesus is getting to the heart again. Remember we talked about this? Jesus is pressing in on the most tender exposed place of her soul. He says this. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. And she said, I don't have a husband. Okay, so there's a lot of overtones here. A lot. Some of them are reading into the text a bit. Some of them I think are there. This could have been a way of saying that she was, could have been a way of saying that she was available. Like you would say, oh, well, what does your husband think about that? Oh, I don't have a husband. You don't. (laughs) So you're saying there's a chance. So like there could have been, she could have been saying I'm available. Could have been. If that was the case, she probably knew, only knew, how to relate to men sexually. There are people, men and women, who can't have a relationship with people that is not sexual, even without sex, flirting. There are people I know that in this room that you cannot have a relationship with another human that's not sexual in some way because that's the only way you've learned how to relate to people. So there could be overtones of that. She's like, I don't, I don't have a husband. It could be that she didn't really want to talk about it and wanted to shut the conversation down and move on to where the spring was. Like, I don't have a husband. Can we just move on? I don't want to talk about this. She just, Jesus presses right in. What Jesus says next, I would have probably fainted. Fainted. I don't even know how she's still standing after this. He said to her, you are right when you say you don't have. No, he didn't say it in that tone. I'm sorry. That's, 
That's not the tone of Jesus. I'm sorry, that was not right. You are right. I'm trying to get the tone right. That was not the right tone. It wasn't like sassy. Okay, Jesus said to her, and he's so gentle with her, that's why it's not the right tone. He's gentle. You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. Right then, I would have just, heart attack, just five husbands, and the man you're now with is not your husband. You've actually said something quite true. He's actually commending her that she told the truth. The way this reads, the emphasis in the original language is like like an endearing, like you, you actually, you told the truth. Imagine meeting someone for the first time, you're having a conversation with them, and they say, hey, go get your spouse. What does your boyfriend or girlfriend think about that? And you're like, I'm not with anyone right now. And this person just went in and said, you're right. The fact is you've been with three people in the last two years, and the person you're messing around with is engaged. You would just, and it was all true. What would you do? Like, I, uh, oh, and you would just faint. I would faint. Now, we've already established that this woman is thirsty. Like a deeper thirst than Jacob's well can quench. She's thirsty. And now we know why she came at noon. She came at noon because, and why she's alone. She came at noon and she came alone because of broken cisterns. Because her life is, is tr- she's trying to keep her life together herself. And she can't hold water. And she thinks maybe this guy will. No. Maybe him. No. Maybe at the beginning she was a victim, which was probably the case, and then later on the victimizer. That cycle, over and over and over again. There's a popular song um, for the last, gosh, several months, six months, maybe five, six months, um, by a guy, I don't know if this is his name, or what, Hosier? I don't know if that's his real name. If it is, it's a crazy name. Um, anyway, there's a song called Take Me to Church. You might have heard it. And a disclaimer, it's, the song's not about church, all right? <laughs> Like, more people want to go to church these days. No, that's not, it's not about inviting, not about church. I, I just want some unsuspecting pastor somewhere to use that as their theme for Easter Sunday. I just, I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for it. It's not about church. It's not about going to church, I should say. It's about sex. The song's about sexuality. And it's about worship. And it's about how churches are trying to keep people from the worship of sex and this writer, this singer-songwriter is angry about it. And the song builds in its first climactic part, he almost screams this refrain. It's my favorite part of the song. He screams this the very, the, the whole, the, the time, the, the first time the song builds to a crescendo, he says, this is hungry work. What we're talking about is hungry work. And I would agree. Sex is hungry work. Worship is hungry work. Anything we worship Power, status, career, money, self-expressions, these are all hungry works. They're works of desire. And they're works of hunger. They're works of thirst. And Jesus stands gently right in front of this woman who has been thirsty, who has been doing hungry work of sexuality for so long who's been through men, who's been through homes, who's been through beds, who's been hungry, who's been thirsty, and he looks right into her soul and asks, how is that working for you? You've been hungry, you've been thirsty, you've been going after all these things, it is hungry work, and you've been using sex or power or money or whatever it is, how is it working for you? 
And Jesus would turn to us the same, same exact way and go, okay, yes, it's hungry work. You've been doing hungry work of desire, going after your career, going after your sexuality, going after whatever it is. How is it working for you? Is it good? Do you have a rest for your soul? Do you go to bed at night so thankful that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God? Is that, how is it working for you? How's that hungry work going? How's that work of desire treating you? Are you still thirsty? Church, sometimes I, I, I wish I can grab you by the proverbial shoulders like Jesus does here to this woman and asks, ask you, what do you want? I mean, what is it that you're really after? What are you looking for? What are you looking for underneath all that stuff you're going, what do you really want? What do you want? What are you looking for at the bottom of that well? What are you looking for at the bottom of that glass? What are you looking for at the foot of that bed? See, it's not that our desires are too big or too strong for God. Like, but I have just so much desire and God can't contain it. No, no, no. That's not the problem. The problem is our desires are too small. They're too weak. C.S. Lewis says this in Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Just fooling around with your sex and your drink and your ambition. How is it working for you? Jesus says to this woman, he says this to us as well. Before, we have, before, we, 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 before I give you living water, you want living water. Before we get into giving you living water, we first have to realize how we've been trying to seek living water. Before I give you the living water you're after, can we talk about how you've been trying to seek the living water? Can we talk about how you've been going after sex and drink and ambition? And can we just talk about how that's working for you? See, at this moment, two things could have happened with this woman. I mean, Jesus shines the light of truth into the deepest parts of her soul. I can't even, there's so much sin in this room. So much sin. And the most seemingly righteous person in this room. So much sin. And I don't have to define sin for you. You know, deep in your heart, like, what I've done there is wrong. I've broken my own moral code. And Jesus, like, shining a light right on that. And I just brought you up here, right in these stage lights. And it's not a fun place to be, by the way. It's not a fun place to be. This right here, right now, I'm not having fun. But anyway, and I just said, expose all your sin. And at that point, there could have been two things that could have happened. First of all, she could have dropped her jar right then and ran. She was exposed. And the light could have caused her to run away like a little cockroach. She's just like, oh my gosh, the light, I can't handle the light. And she runs away. But she didn't. She stands right there. She stood in the light. When all her sin and her brokenness was exposed, she stands there. She didn't run away. The second thing that could have happened is Jesus, at that moment, could have crushed her. He could have just went and just crushed her entire life. He could have said, I'm the righteous one of Israel. I'm the sinless man from heaven. I cannot believe your life and what you've made of the life I've given you. I cannot. And he could have crushed her under his righteous, perfected, per- perfect condemnation. He could have said, you, you've done that with your life that I've given you? And he could have went, crushed her. But do you remember last week, John 3, 17? As important, if not more important than John 3, 16? I didn't say more important, as important. 
This is a good commentary, by the way, on what's going on here. For God did not send his, his, his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Why did Jesus must needs go through Samaria? The son was sent to this woman not to condemn her, but to save her. He had to go. He had to meet this woman. Had to. Stands in front of her. Has her life in his hands and could have crushed her under the weight of his own condemnation. Because he, he is the righteous judge. And Jesus exposes this woman's life and doesn't even, I mean, it doesn't even seem like he comes down on her immorality. Though the immorality is there. It's clear. What he does is he brings to light how her life is an utter mess. And he doesn't condemn her. He offers her living water. I did not come to condemn you. I came to save you. I know everything about you. Everything about you. And I've come here to deliver you. I've come here to save you. See, what's, Jesus doesn't go on this whole thing about why her life was such an immoral mess. What he does is exposes the fact that her life was simply a mess. That her life was a broken series of false beginnings and shattered hopes. How she started, maybe this relationship is the one. And it wasn't. Maybe this job is the one. And it wasn't. Maybe this church is the one. Maybe this city is the one. Maybe this thing is the thing. And it wasn't. And so it's false beginnings, false beginnings, false beginnings. Shattered hopes, shattered hopes. And what she says next, I've always found actually very humorous. And we laughed when we read it. Jesus says, you've been with five men. The one you're, not, you're with now is not your husband. She says, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. This is so good. Like, sir, I'm wicked smart. And I'm perceiving some, I'm picking up some vibes here. <laughs> and the vibe I'm picking up is that, like, I think you know some stuff. I think you might even be a prophet. But then she gets dodgy. Okay, she doesn't leave. She doesn't, like, run. But she does get dodgy. She, she said, she, she changes the subject. She's like, okay, you've been with five guys and the guy you're not with. She's like, I see you're a prophet. And then she starts actually talking about um, religious stuff. She would rather change the subject than have the light of God exposing deep places in her soul. Okay, you might be feeling the same thing right now. The Spirit of God is, might be pressing in on some stuff, and you would rather me change the subject right now. You'd rather me say a, a joke, or you'd rather me talk about, or there could be a, a defense mechanism kicking in. Like the light of truth, Jesus the Christ, by the Spirit of God, is like shining something in, and showing like places where you're broken. And then you're like feeling uncomfortable, and immediately you start going, but the Crusades. Like, what? <laughs> You, you know you do that. People do that. But the Crusades, I don't know if I can believe this thing. What about the wars of religion? Like everyone's fighting. What about sexual scandal in the church? What about the universal claim of Christ when there's so many religions out there? How does, and we, we start dodging it. We start like theologically, I don't know if I can, but what about, and we do that. And we would much rather debate theology or we much rather debate like world religions and dodge, dodge, dodge. This woman does the same thing. I can see that you're a prophet. So my ancestors said we should worship there. And then you people said we should worship there. What do you think? It's like, and the, but Jesus goes there. Jesus cuts through it all and says, listen, I'll tell you the truth. 
The time is coming and has now come. And he's saying it's coming in him and in his inauguration, in him being, Christ being there, where the true worshipers worship the God in spirit and in truth. It does not matter about location. It doesn't matter where you worship. It doesn't matter, matter about ethnicity or social class or heritage or moral record. It's connected to the life-giving power of the spirit and to the truth of Jesus. That's how you really worship. And he presses in, and then he exposes her real thirst. At this point, her real thirst is exposed. It took a while to get there. Her real thirst was not men. Her real thirst was not sexuality. Her real thirst was even security. Her real thirst, what she's been, she's been thirsting for all along, and maybe didn't even realize it until Jesus drew it out, was she was waiting for God. She, long, she actually longed for God. Look what it says in the next verse. The woman said, I know that Messiah called the Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. She's saying, I'm waiting for the Messiah, I'm waiting for a deliverer, I'm waiting for the one to come from God to set everything right, who will tell us everything. The, the thirst that's actually beneath all the thirst is, I actually thirst for God. And she probably would not have admitted it at the very beginning, but towards the end of the conversation, she's like, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually thirsting for God. Then Jesus declared this, and this is the first I am statement, by the way, in John. Then Jesus declared, I, the one who, the one speaking to you, I am he. I'm the one. There's part of me, I've been reflecting on this and meditating on this passage for some time. There's part of me that thinks that she kind of knew he was the Messiah, but she was trying to get him to say it. She was like, I'm waiting for the Messiah. Like, she was just, like, he was just, she's just testing the water. It's like, I think this is the Messiah. I'm waiting for the Messiah. And he goes, I am he. And she's like, and she, she, at that point, the disciples walk up. They're like, what are you doing? What? And, but no one's, okay, where it says um, no one dared say, what it means is they thought it, but no one said it. No one dared say out loud, what are you, what are you doing here? And why are you talking to each other? Like, they're thinking, like, oh my gosh, what's going on? But they, they knew enough to trust Jesus. And, and they would pay off later on when they went to Samaria and all these people were led to follow Jesus. So this woman sees disciples walking up and they're like, and, she's, and she just drops her jar and runs back to town. And she says this, come and see the man who told me everything I've ever, I ever did. Come and see the man who told me all that I ever did. This is a very odd thing to say. Like she runs to town and she starts confessing. Like she doesn't run to town to go, listen, I, I found a prophet who's really smart. He tells us where to worship. I met a guy. You need to meet him. He like, he's really smart. He, know, he knows some stuff. She started coming out and she's like, you guys have to, you have to realize that I met someone who knows everything about me. Everything. You guys kind of know. But he knows everything. She came face to face with the one that is spoken of in Psalm 139, where it says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. She met him. So she's there, and she runs into town like, I've met the one who's, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Christ? He knows everything about me. And we're told, we're, it's inferred that she's healed. And she brings her whole town to Jesus. 
And then Jesus comes to her town for two days, and many people are led to the Lord. Now, here's the thing. We, do a te- we, do, we, we talk about this restoration, and I think every single person here wants restoration. We want our soul to be restored by God. Or, if you're not using the word God, we want our souls to be restored. All of us do. We want peace. We want repair. We want wholeness. But I think one of the, the deepest needs and longings that we have is humanity. Not only do we want to be repaired and have our desires met, our, 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 our desires met, the other thing that we deeply want, I know there's a, a room full of them, we deeply want to be people that make a difference in this world. We deeply want to be people that help people. We deeply want to be people that bring about healing. We really want to be people that help. So it's not good enough to go, hey, I'm going to offer you restoration. Bam, restored. And you're like, boom, I'm restored. Okay, great. I'm just going to do what I do with burritos and the mission and then like sunshine and Dolores. Like, oh, like we don't want that. Like that's fun for like a weekend, but that's, that's not life. We can't do that. We know we just never get by that way. What our souls long for is to make an impact. Our souls long for to make a difference in this life. So not just that we're healed and then we can say we feel better about ourselves, but to make a difference in this world. But notice verse 13, what Jesus said at the very beginning. He said this, everyone who drinks of this will be be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, more so than that. Not only will you never thirst, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What happens is not only do you never thirst again, but you actually become a spring where you're giving the life of God out to people, where your life becomes a conduit of the life of God to the world. So you're not just like, oh, I feel so good, I'm, I'm so not thirsty anymore. But not only are you not thirsty, the water of Jesus quenches us from that hopeless thirst, but also makes us ourselves wells. We become springs of God. This woman becomes a conduit for the life of God. This woman becomes like a little Jesus. She runs to the town. And she does not run back to the town and go, oh my gosh, i got to buy a Bible and find a church. That's not, like, that's not what she did. She went back and she goes around town and she, for people that she was ashamed of, she says, I now have the water of life flowing through me. And I want to show you who I met. She becomes one of the first evangelists in the New Testament. And she becomes a proto-disciple. John has put this in here. It's like, I want all disciples to look like this woman. This woman who has no name from the wrong race and the wrong moral background becomes liberated and the life of God is flowing through her and she's telling the world. This, this is like a, a, a picture of being not just healed, but used by God. Not just healed, but a place of healing. To be people where the life of God is in and flowing through. There's another thing, too. And I I really want to say this as we close. I think this is important to say in this room. You know, there are people who think coming to Jesus means that your sexuality will be suppressed. It's like as soon as you become a Christian, your your sexuality becomes suppressed. But this woman's sexuality meets Jesus, and she is more free more empowered, more whole than she ever was. And her life has real meaning. And we're still talking about her 2,000 years later. You and me, we go after our selfish little small, weak pursuits. And it's, not only does it never ever satisfy, it does nothing 
for the life of the world at all. But this woman gives her life. This woman goes to Jesus. She could step out of the, out of the light and go, I can't, I can't handle this anymore. She stays in it. She stays with it. Jesus exposes all the stuff. She's purified and becomes a spring of God. A spring of God where through her life, the life of God is reaching and cleansing and teaching all these people. And at the end, they said to the woman, they go to the woman and they're like, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Because it had to do with what she said. We now have heard for ourselves and know this man really is the savior of the world. She brought people to Christ. This is such an insane and beautiful story. The life of God. There is nothing more satisfying than the life of God. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Actually, what I want to do right now, church, keep your eyes, uh, whatever you're doing, eyes closed or open, I don't really care. But just sit, sit with this for a second. I want to end our time with an, with an asking. Do you remember when Jesus said, if you knew who was asking you for water, you would ask him and he would give you living water? I hope that in our time in the scriptures, you know who this one is, this Christ, Jesus. And I want you to know that you can ask. As he stands before you, exposing some hidden places in your own soul right now, that he's offering you living water. And I want to say to you this morning, ask. Open your mouth and ask, God, I want this living water. God, I want the quenching of my desires to be fulfilled in you. And that hopeless thirst to go away. So you'll still be thirsty, but you'll be thirsting for the good of God. Like Jesus, when they said, he said, I have food that you don't know not of. And they're like, where'd you get food? My food's to do the will of God. That was his true desire. That brought him true satisfaction and fulfillment. That's what happens to us. God is the source of life and renewal that you're looking for. If you've heard this morning, I want you to come and experience Jesus for yourself. So, Lord, I pray that we, our hearts, there be hearts all over this room, maybe for the very first time, that are asking, Lord, give me this living water. You came not to condemn, but to save. That you would save today. In Jesus' name.